Welcome to the Bear Marriage Podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from BearMarriage.com, where we like to talk about biblical evidence-based. Ha, huh, I haven't done this in a month and I said it wrong. <laughs> we'll try that again. Where we like to talk about healthy evidence-based biblical advice for your marriage and your sex life. And we are back after a month-long vacation. I am joined today by my daughter, Rebecca Lindenbach. Hello, hello. And this is the first podcast in our new season. And I already messed up the intro. So we are on episode 201. And we are so glad to be back with you. Um, Normally, for those of you watching on YouTube, we would be like sitting side by side. But I took a month long vacation and we ended that vacation with COVID. (laughs) Um, I feel like this is just how things go now. Yes. So I had a very mild case. My husband's actually quite ill and Rebecca just doesn't want to get it from my husband. Absolutely not. No. (laughs) So so we are staying in separate houses while he recovers and I am recording downstairs because he's coughing so much upstairs. (laughs) So he is okay though. I I don't mean to make light of it. He's just kind of feeling miserable. Um, Yeah. So what we want to talk about today is to set the stage for the Bear Marriage podcast this season. Mm-hmm. Season three, right? I don't even know what season, season four. Three. I think it might even be season four. It depends how you no count clue. seasons. But yeah, like this is, we've been, we've, we've, we hit two and a half million downloads while we were on vacation. Oh. So that's exciting. A lot of people are listening in. And during this month that we had off, and even in the months leading up to that, we've been doing a lot of thinking, a lot of strategizing, a lot of praying, and just asking the question, like, where do we want to go now? Because we've spent, you know, several years really tackling toxic books and mm-hmm. toxic teachings and calling things out. And I think what a, where we want to go now is to ask the question, what would it look like? If we actually just had healthy marriages. Yeah. You know, if you want to put the toxic stuff behind you and walk forward in health, how do you actually do that? And what does that look like? You know, what does it look like to have the Jesus way of doing marriage? So that doesn't mean that we're not going to talk, that we're not going to explain toxic stuff, because often the easiest way to explain what health looks like is to show you what it doesn't look like. Yeah, to contrast it with what we know that's not healthy. Yeah, and that is often being taught. Um, but but we just really want to focus this year on I love this because you said this on a walk and I hate to take your thunder. Maybe I should That's let fine. you you quote it. I say so you, many smart things on walks, so I don't know what you, you're gonna quote. So you really do. And then I take them and then people think I say these smart things. But you said, what if we stop focusing on having a Christian marriage mm-hmm. and started focusing on just what it looks like to be a Christian in your marriage? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's so good. I think we're going to keep coming back to that in the next couple of weeks for some of the interesting things we're going to be talking about. But today, I want to take kind of a romp through the Bible (laughs) and look at two different ways um, that we have often approached the idea of a biblical marriage, and then talk about what it actually looks like to to have a Jesus way marriage where we're not just gaslighting ourselves and telling ourselves that, you know, my marriage is great. Like, how do we tell the truth about our marriage? So let's start with what it looks like to have a biblical marriage. Because that is such a loaded term, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. I mean, there are a lot of examples of biblical marriages that are very biblical, very much a marriage. <laughs> um, not sure there are great candidates for a biblical marriage. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, because when we hear biblical marriage, what do we mean? Do we mean polygamy? I mean, that was marriage in the Bible. Yeah, do we mean uh, Rebecca tricking her husband to give the son she actually likes the birthright instead of yeah. uh, the one he planned to give the birthright to? Yeah, because that's in the Bible. Do we think it means marrying someone that you raped? Yeah. Because that's in the Bible? Um, or or do we think it means something else? And my problem is that often we take um, lessons from the marriages in the Bible or from examples in the Bible and think that this is the way things are going to be. And we're missing that the Bible is supposed to point us to God mm -hmm. and that all of scripture needs to be interpreted through Jesus and through the person yeah. of Jesus. And we're missing the whole character of Jesus. So let me give you an example. And we'll do this for the book of Esther. I actually have a post on this that I that I ran on Monday this week, which I will link to in the, in the podcast notes because it summarizes this really well. But um, when you look at the, the biblical story of Esther, it's so interesting because it opens with something. I'm going to read this to you and I'm going to ask you what this sounds like. Okay, Rebecca? Okay. Why don't you set the stage for us? How does Esther begin? Esther starts with a marriage that would rival a lot of the ones in your typical kind of like fiction books where you have like the bad dude marriage, right? So he's <laughs> he's sitting there, he's a king, he's married to Vashti, he's a bad dude, he's like, I'm going to have a party, all my friends are going to be there, and you're going to be the entertainment. And she's like, absolutely not. Right. Your friends are gross, you're gross, all of this is gross, absolutely not. So mm -hmm. anyway, so he's like, hey, you, dance, clothing optional, except it's not optional, there should be none. And right. she says no. Right. And so this class is a huge... That's my summary. Anyway. Yes, that's pretty much it. So he says, come dance before all these drunken nobles. And and the Hebrew, um, it says wearing her crown. But if you look at the Hebrew, a lot of people think it says wearing only her crown. Like, you know. It's but clearly it is, putting she's... her in a suggestive situation. Yeah. And she says no. And so this causes a big thing because the queen said no to her husband. And so this is what... This this is the commentary on this from Esther 1, 16 to 20. Memekin answered the king and his nobles, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also every noble and citizen throughout your empire. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they learn that Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the king. Before this day is out, the wives of all the king's nobles throughout Persia and Media will hear what the queen did and will start treating their husbands the same way. There will be no end to their contempt and anger. So if it pleases the king, we suggest that you issue a written decree, a law of the Persians and Medes that cannot be revoked. It should order that Queen Vashti be forever vanished from the presence of King Xerxes and that the king should choose another queen more worthy than she. When this decree is published throughout the king's vast empire, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, will receive proper respect from their wives. Yeah. This is the time someone stands up for the men. <laughs> That's okay. So the main concern here is that we would hate to be in a situation where wives are told that they don't have to obey their husband's authority. And what we need yeah. is for wives to respect their husbands. Yeah. And by respect their husbands, it means do literally anything their husbands asks, even if it's demeaning, degrading, or damaging or harmful to them. Right. Who does this sound like to you, Rebecca? <laughs> A lot of people. I'm gonna have a lot of people. I'm gonna be honest. <laughs> Read the Great Sex Rescue to find out more. <laughs> yeah, but this whole idea that that 
the the big concern is that wives are supposed to respect their husbands. Yeah. Sounds a lot like the book Love and Respect. And interestingly, in Love and Respect, Emerson Egrich quotes the words of this pagan advisor. Of Mammakin? Positively. Yeah. No, that does not surprise me at all. It's As like, yeah, yeah. No, the women should obey. She should have stripped yeah. down a naked in front of her. Son. Yeah, this is a good thing. This would be better. The world should have more stripped down wives dancing in front of her husband's friends. That's yeah. how the world looks better. <laughs> like, this doesn't surprise me because I don't think he actually put any thought into his biblical scholarship i think he just mm-hmm. like literally did like google search for like respect husbands and just pulled mm-hmm. all the verses and didn't look at the context because i think this was so much more about a agenda than it was actual truth so i'm not mm-hmm. saying emerson negrich actually thinks that wives should strip down and parade in front of their husband's friends i do think that he mm-hmm. accidentally made that argument because he didn't do even an ounce of actual scholarly research for this book yeah and we do have a we do have a podcast too on on how he misuses <laughs> scripture um, including this, and I will I will link to that. But he he says this, and and it's in a little pullout quote where he and where he says, "Wives virtually ask to be unloved when they look down on their husbands." Yeah, Esther that's Agrich, right? That's Agrich. Agrich yeah. says that best yeah. love and respect, and then, everyone. And then he 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 talks about how you know this this story in the book of Esther shows how men react when they aren't respected. So. He's saying it sure that does. I'm just gonna men, say it sure does. Yeah. That Christian men react to their wives setting clear boundaries that are reasonable in the same way as men who are actively going against God react. Like I, what does I that have say? no commentary that I think I'm allowed to say <laughs> on the podcast. So I'm just going to say, yes, they did say that. <laughs> they did say that. He said I it. I mean, um, imagine taking this story of a pagan king. And I'm not saying all <laughs> pagans are bad. Like, this, you know, we've learned there, there's been some amazing research and, and insights of the world but and truth when we're talking about, who don't when know we're talking about Xerxes but, as a pagan king. We're talking about a king who literally then hosted like a rape marathon to right. find no, a good he wife. is the baddie like he's, he's the not, bad guy like yeah. he's the bad guy in the story like you know the question are we the baddies like, like that's a yes question. he's the baddie <laughs> he's the baddie okay um in this story and emerson Egrich is saying yes this is the way christian men think too it's and disgusting. that's a real problem and when i'm gonna you be honest. identifying I have good reason based on how much writing of Emerson Egrich I have read and focus on the family Mm -hmm. and all their friends. I think that the Christian men around Emerson Egrich do feel like that personally. And so Um, so I want I want to back up and I want to ask a bigger question, not just about marriage, but about how we interpret um, how we're supposed to live the Christian life, Mm -hmm. which is what is the book of Esther actually trying to tell us about power? Because if you look at it, and if you look at everything the king and Haman and his advisors, Haman is is one of the king's main advisors, and he ends up being like an even worse bad guy in this book than 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 the king. The king is kind of hapless, whereas Haman is like strategizing. So they're all bad guys, right? And the only thing they're concerned about is being treated as someone in power and getting the benefits yeah. of power and having other people look up to them. They're trying to earn power 
without actually and having having the benefits of power without doing anything worthy of it. Yeah, exactly. Like everything they do is despicable or it's just me focused and selfish. Mm-hmm. And I, I think what the book of Esther does is it shows us the real emptiness of this quest for power. Yes. Because you see that like the king is so insecure that he needs everyone to think he's the greatest. So he invites all these nobles for a huge party to say, look how amazing I am that I can throw this party. And then look at my amazing smoking hot wife, you know, <laughs> and, and, and Haman is plotting to see how, how he can get other people to bow down to him, mm-hmm. but they're not actually doing anything worthy of respect. Yeah. Or worthy of power. And into this story comes two people, Mordecai and Esther. And Mordecai is an interesting guy because like he actually saves the king from assassination at one point. And he doesn't even get a lot of thanks for that initially. Um, And the king isn't even a good person, but Mordecai just does what's right. And then Esther does what's right in an absolutely impossible situation where she's basically being sex trafficked. Mm -hmm. Um, And she has no choice, but she still tries to live this righteous life. And then we get this amazing um, question, which reverberates throughout the centuries. What if you were put into this place for such a time as this? Exactly. And Esther, you know, and that's a question that we all need to ask, you know, what if I'm here for such a time as this? What if there is something that God wants me to do? And so like Esther and Mordecai show us, hey, here is what good character looks like. And through their good character, they make the king and Haman look stupid. Yes, they really do. Especially Haman. (laughs) Yeah, they make them look really, really stupid. And what if that is kind of a picture in some ways of the gospels. I'm not saying that Jesus is trying to make people look stupid, but I mean, what if the picture of Jesus in the gospels is a bigger one? That it's not just that he died on the cross for our sins so that we can live forever in heaven, okay? Which is what we normally think of as the gospel. What if Jesus is showing us through his life, the emptiness and the pettiness Mm-hmm. of the way the world is set up where things are all about power and status and money and rank. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is knocking down all of those walls and saying, that doesn't matter. You know, what matters is how we treat one another and how we love one another in community. Yeah. I've read some really interesting books that got me starting to think on this way. One, one of the um, ones that really started my journey on this was N.T. Wright's book, The Day God Became King. Which, which really looks at the empty way that we see Jesus. And do you remember um, in 2012, we went to Italy yes, um, as a family and we kept going into all of these cathedrals and all of these art galleries and saw so many pictures of Jesus, but they only ever showed like three instances from his life. Do you remember this? Yes. It was the birth, uh-huh. death, and the baptism. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Birth, death, yeah. baptism. Like there really was nothing else about Jesus. Now the apostles were shown doing all kinds of different things. Like the apostles yeah. were shown like, like, um, yeah, preaching and, and, and feeding the poor and yeah. You know. But Jesus was Jesus. He was almost emotionless. Like he was either dead <laughs> you know, or baby <laughs> or he was being bad. And like his whole life was kind of condensed to that. And one of the points that N.T. Wright makes 
is that we can run into problems with this as Christians because we think that Christianity can be conveyed by our creeds. Yeah, I have a quote from him about that. Okay, yeah. Here's what he says, okay? It is possible, it seems, to affirm everything the creed says, especially Jesus's divine status and his bodily resurrection, but to know nothing of what the gospel writers were trying to say. Something is seriously wrong here. Yes, That's because what, what does the creed say? You know, and and um, we've started to go to an Anglican church. Um, and we went to one when you were a baby, actually, and we've, we've gone back to the Anglican church recently. And be, because one of the things I absolutely love is how much scripture is in the service. Yeah. And we do say the creed every week. And I love the Apostles' Creed. Um, but but here's how it summarizes Jesus. Or here's how it starts, right? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived the by the Holy Spirit. Born of the Virgin Mary. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, was, crucif- was crucified under Pontius Suffered Pilate. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, Pilate was, crucified, was crucified, died, and buried. Dead and buried. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so it's like born, yeah. died. <laughs> Yeah. And that's all it says. Yeah. For his um, life on earth. Yeah. Right. Like he he was conceived and born and then he suffered and died. Yeah. And there's nothing in between. Yeah. Um, That doesn't mean the creed is bad. It's just what N.T. Wright is asking us to do is to rethink what it means to believe in Jesus and what are the main tenets of our faith and to realize what the creeds were for. Yeah, because what what I love is in studying church history, you realize how many incredibly feisty, but like we would now consider very silly fights happened in the church over Mm -hmm. theological differences. Like Mm -hmm. pretty much everything that you could fight about, they like split a church over like the same way that we do with denominations now, right? Um, you know, whether Easter should be based on this calendar or this calendar, whether Christmas should be settled at this time or this time, uh, you know, and they did. They All the things in the creeds, they were very, very famous and very common disagreements among churches and congregations. People didn't really disagree on the actual gospels themselves. Right. Um, like the idea that Jesus did these things, the things that were written in the gospels, those like the actual example of Christ's life on earth, those weren't necessarily as disagreed on. And so why would they be in the in the creed right because right? the, the creed creeds are only like the creeds are literally they got all the big wigs together like listen <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna settle this this is mm-hmm. what christianity is anything other than mm-hmm. this we don't claim that mm-hmm. and that's what it was about and so the the heretics were agreeing that yeah he fed the people the loaves and the fishes and yeah, he served people and yeah, he washed mm-hmm. feet, but they were just like, we just don't believe that he was actually the son of God or, but we believe that he wasn't fully God or, you know, we just don't believe that he was uh, raised from the dead. And so that's mm-hmm. what the creeds are about. They're about the things where they div- diverged. Right. And, and so Wright's point is that we are often missing in our story of Jesus. We focus so much on the meaning of salvation in terms of the cross yeah, and what it means for us personally, you know, that I, uh, so that I am saved from my sins so that I can now go to heaven. Like it's sort of like a get out of jail free card, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to seeing the message of the gospels as being far more than that. Yeah. Where yeah. Jesus tore down all the ways that we think power should be and that we think life should be organized and he showed the emptiness of it 
And that's really the example of his life. And and what I find so funny is, is Wright's concern about the emphasis on a creedal faith is so, I mean, I, I mean, I likely got this place from N.T. Wright, just not realizing it, to be honest. But the noticing again and again, like the idea that when Paul was writing his letters, because anyone who's grown up evangelical knows that you actually mostly read Paul mm-hmm. in church. Paul in the Old Testament, actually, we read quite a lot. Except in the Anglican Church, where you stand for the gospel. And the yeah, no, that's, that's what I mean, like the evangelical <laughs> churches. In the yeah. evangelical churches, right, that I that I grew up in, our Bible studies were often on non-gospel books. And mm-hmm. our, our focus was often on non-gospel books, to the extent that when I went to university and was in a gospel-focused um, Bible study, I was really uncomfortable because I was like, but I have to talk about Corinthians and Ephesians and Philippians. Right. <laughs> and got into tips with the leadership about that because I was like, but like, what about the rest of the Bible? And they're like, yeah, we're only talking about the gospels here. And now I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. That's why my husband has an amazing faith. That's very Jesus centered because that's where he came to Christianity. And that's why he didn't get super power hungry. Ah, got it. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, Elena, if you listening, <laughs> wait <to> go. Uh, <laughs> But this idea that, you know, when Paul was writing his letter to the Corinthian church, he was writing to a church that knew the gospel. Yeah. He's not going to, he, he doesn't really cover much of the basics. He's talking about mm-hmm. the specific issues that that church has with the understanding that they do know the gospel. Like mm-hmm. that's what their faith is based on. And so when we base our faith on someone else's kind of like tertiary like, let's fix the stuff on the outside now kind mm-hmm. of writings. We are missing the meat. Mm-hmm. Right? Like I was saying before we started recording, like, I, like, parenting my kids, the vast, vast, vast majority of my time is not spent on discipline. Mm-hmm. Like, the vast. We have a lot of fun. We go. We play. I also anticipate a lot of pro- problem areas, and we just skip them entirely. Uh, because, <laughs> you know, instead of saying, okay, we have to go now, it's like, hey, Alex, do you want to wear a blue hat or a red hat? Oh, mm-hmm. do you want to put your sunscreen on or do you want mommy to? By the way, we're leaving. Uh, <laughs> you know, just that kind of difference, you know? The vast majority of my time is not spent on discipline. But whenever my friends are having problems with discipline and they're like, hey, how did you get Alex to stop, you know, drop kicking the dog or whatever? He didn't. I'm being facetious. Anyway, um, <laughs> then I would send them these super long messages with like different ideas and different things that we did and why it's important to hold your boundaries as a parent as well because kids need strong boundaries and so if you only read those messages you'd think that most of my parenting is based on discipline and boundaries with my kids Mm -hmm. and that's not most of our experience most of our experience Mm -hmm. is just playing and talking Mm -hmm. and doing arts and crafts and going to you know the nature trails in our area and I think that's what we've done with faith is mm-hmm. we've made it so much about the squab the 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 conflict resolutions about things that were happening with the assumption of the gospel being the center that we've actually mm-hmm. stopped having the gospel be the center and we started having all of these okay but but like what do, how do we fix this problem is the center when maybe the problem mm-hmm. shouldn't have ever been the center you know, mm-hmm. it's like we we it's like, oh, OK, like say someone really liked how I parented. And so they just did every single thing they ever did was giving warnings to their kids. It's like, well, then you're not parenting how I parented. Like, yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. Because we're we're missing the 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 forest for the trees. I think because yeah. we're focusing so much on um, often on the letters, and we're not saying the letters aren't important, not at all. It's just that we Jesus is the word. Yes. Right. Jesus is the word. Yes. And the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Mm-hmm. And I think we have often put the Bible on the throne rather than yep. Jesus on the throne, because yep. the Bible's purpose is is to point us to Jesus and we interpret scripture through the lens of Christ. And, and if often, anyone gets mad at, and I know people are going to get mad at that. So I'm just going to say something. Mm-hmm. People get mad saying, yeah, but, 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 but the Bible is how we know Jesus. Is that mm-hmm. true? Scripturally speaking, is that true? Mm-hmm. Scripturally speaking, I'm not talking about like, well, your experience. Like if you actually look at the Bible, is it true that scripture is the only way that we know Christ? Mm-hmm. Because remember that, up until the last very, very recent history, the vast majority of believers have been completely illiterate. Mm-hmm. And so they'd go to mass or they'd go to church like once a week, and that would be all their scripture reading that they got. And the rest of their life was in meditation and prayer and, oh, the Holy Spirit. <laughs> oh like this idea and scripturally speaking if you actually look at the scripture that people say is the reason why we can't say that we follow jesus and jesus helps us interpret the bible that very bible says i am sending you a messenger mm-hmm. it is the holy spirit who shows us and gives us the ability to understand who jesus is and so this idea that you can understand the bible through the lens of christ is not saying we don't love the bible it's saying that we love it enough to trust what it says to us mm-hmm. and we love it enough to put it in the place that christ wants us to put it yeah. which is in the lens of the example of his life so I just wanted to get ahead because I know some people are going to get like, it's it's a hard thing. Because when I started hearing that at first, I was like, oh, that's so bad. Yeah. And then when you actually read the Bible, it's like, oh, oh, dear. The Bible itself says. Yes. And remember to- that the Bible wasn't even written like it wasn't like the Bible wasn't even finished until like, what, 50 years after Christ died? Oh, something. Um, yeah. A long at time least- after. And um, most most of the new Christians didn't even have. Well, the Bible, as know. we know, it was put together in 300 and something right. CE. So like when you say it was finished, it wasn't finished until like lifetimes. After. Yes. We'll put it this way. Like yeah. from now to when it was completed would have been in the late 1600s. That's how much right. time passed between right. Christ. But, but the and... individual books, the individual books yeah. and letters were written. You We're know, written quite a bit closer, um, yeah. Decades, yeah, and but often decades after Jesus died, but people still knew Christ, yeah. You know, because they they had the stories, they had prayer, they had the Holy Spirit. Um, one of the, and and so anyway, I, I I always do a lot of reading when I'm on vacation, so I've been reading a lot of theology books, a lot of a lot of different books, and um, one of the concepts that I keep coming back to, and I, I find this so, um, key is that we often think that Jesus shows us um, who God is, mm-hmm. like, because Jesus is like God. So when we look at Jesus, you know, we understand God and, you know, he, he has seen me has seen the father. And that's our emphasis is how we can know God, the father. But what if we put a slightly different twist on it and say, it's not just that Jesus is like God and Jesus is God, but it's actually that 
God is like Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yep. He came and to show us God in human form. He came to show us God. So when we're trying to figure out who God is and what God is like, we just need to look at Jesus. Mm-hmm. Because that is who God is like. And when people say things like, well, God wants you to, whatever it might be, God wants you to stay in this abusive marriage. God wants you to um, forgive, 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 you know, no matter what the person says, um, even if it's hurting you. That's an easy thing to say when you put God at the front of that sentence. When you put Jesus at the front of that sentence, is that as easy? Mm -hmm. And so that's the invitation that I want that I want to give to us this this year is to actually put Jesus back at the front of those sentences. And so I want I I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, And and one of the books that I read was inspired by Rachel Mm -hmm. Held Evans, who kind of deals with a lot of these concepts. Like we had the book of Esther, where um, the point of that book is to show the emptiness of the pursuit of power. And 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 N.T. Wright said that about you know, um, the gospels is to show the emptiness of the way that we do power and to turn the world upside down. And he calls it, you know, an upside down gospel an upside down revolution. And that's what it is. It's like, yeah, we're not supposed to be vying for power. And so Rachel asks us to take another look at the household codes, by which she means um, the most famous ones are in Ephesians, uh, where it looks at, you know, wives, husbands, children, parents, slaves, yeah masters. There's other ones in Colossians, but you know, they can sort of be summarized as household codes. And I want to read just a couple of quotes that she says about these because they're so good. Okay. Many modern readers assume teachings about wives submitting to their husbands appear exclusively in the pages of scripture and thus reflect uniquely biblical views about women's role in the home. But to the people who first heard these letters read aloud in their churches, the words of Peter and Paul would have struck them as both familiar and strange, a sort of Christian remix on familiar Greco-Roman philosophy that positioned the male head of the house as the rightful ruler over his subordinate wives, children, and slaves. By instructing men to love their wives and respect their slaves, and by telling everyone to submit to one another with Jesus as the ultimate head of the house, the apostles offer correctives to cultural norms without upending them. Yeah, exactly. And I just found this so so you got a picture. What she's saying is, look, Paul's writing to the Ephesians, and the Ephesians are trying to figure out how to live as Christians in a Roman world. Mm-hmm. And you know, we need Paul and the apostles, they needed the gospel to be something that could spread. And so they didn't want to overly antagonize the Romans. They weren't gonna, they they weren't in a position to overthrow Rome. And well, they so the also way- didn't want like the people you had slaves and women in these churches, and you had more slaves and women than you did Roman men. And yeah, to tell them to just, you know, like it, it, there was also safety concerns too, like for mm-hmm. the congregants that I'm sure they didn't take lightly. Right. Yeah. Because to tell slaves that you don't need to listen to your masters would just simply result in the slaves being killed. Mm-hmm. And so, and so Paul is saying, okay, look, <laughs> you know, in this way, um, here's how, here's how we can bring Jesus into it. And she goes on to say this, the question for modern readers is whether the point of the New Testament household codes is to reinforce the Greco-Roman household structure as God's ideal for all people in all places for all time, or whether the point is to encourage Christians to imitate Jesus in their relationships, regardless of the culture or their status in it. Yeah, exactly. And I know that like that seems so obvious when you're reading it, Mm -hmm. but to some people it's not. Yeah. 
Because we think that when the words women submit, you know, wives submit to your husbands, ask the Lord, we think like, wow, that is a, that is a harsh thing to say, but that wouldn't have phased anyone hearing that. No, if it was like, hey, it was more like the idea that it's like, hey, you know, you're owned as property. Okay. Like he can do whatever Mm -hmm. he wants to you. You are literally property of Mm -hmm. him. And so you're going to reclaim that by subverting Mm -hmm. that power and you're submitting to him, but you're not really, you're submitting to God. Yeah. You're submitting to him. It's actually kind of a way to give a bit cheeky, like, Hey, like you might think I'm being your lovely submissive wife, but Mm -hmm. really I'm not doing this for you. I'm not doing this. It's actually really not meek or gentle. (laughs) Like when I read that, I'm like, I'm reading it. I'm like women, I know this sucks. Mm-hmm. You know, do we have to do, but take solace in the fact that you're not doing it for him. You're not yeah. doing it for that man. Yeah, you're doing it to the Lord. And interestingly, there's the the verb wives submit your husbands is not in the command form in Greek. Yes. There actually are no words in the entire household codes, which are direct commands to women, whereas there are yeah. multiple words that are commands to men. And we don't, yep. we lose that in the English translation, but it's more like a description. It's more like a description. Wives keep doing what you're already doing. Wives submitting yep. to your husbands. You know, you're already doing this. Keep yeah, doing and this. Just but this like, time you know, do it a mindset shift. Mindset shift is like when it's really, I know your life is, is really, this is hard. But just, mm-hmm. you know, God will like, you know, you're in an impossible situation. God will reward your faithfulness in an impossible situation. Now, remember, that actually was an impossible situation. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about this in a little bit. But women are not in an impossible situation anymore. That's right. And yeah. so we're going to talk about that later. So that's why. But but I just want to say that's that's more. Whereas for men, it was like, hey, men, hey, love them. Actually love them. <laughs> love them yeah. like Christ <laughs> loves them. Like, don't just be like, oh, they're nice. Like, love them sacrificially, like how Christ does with your body. Like her body mm-hmm. is your body. It was in essence like women. Yeah, I'm sorry. Things suck. Men, <laughs> stop making things suck for women. Like, yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's really. It's like women, then- slaves. <laughs> Things are rough. We're sorry. Men, you're the problem here. Be like Christ. Like <laughs> yeah. when you actually look yeah. at how the verbs work in that whole section, that's what it's yeah. like. It's like everyone, just submit mm-hmm. to one another. Women, slaves, you don't have a choice. You're already doing this. Men, start using the choice. Yeah. Like Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and if you count the number of words that Paul gives to husbands versus wives, it's quite amazing. And yeah. so that's what would have made this this would have this would have been actually quite a revolutionary thing to read. And yet we are using this same passage to keep women today mm-hmm. from following Jesus. Telling women instead, you need to silence the voice of Jesus in your heart and yeah. in your mind because you need to do what your husband says, not what God says. Mm-hmm. Yep, and remember got the it same all Jesus who rewarded Mary for sitting at his feet. Mm-hmm. The same Jesus who rewarded women for doing traditionally, you know, male learning tasks when it came to religious studies. Right. And so let me go on and read. So, so in her book, Inspired, um, Rachel also told uh, she had a story um, in this section of what it might have looked like in the early church first hearing this letter. Uh, written in Ephesus. And uh, I just want to read you a couple of paragraphs um, from that story. So one of the characters is saying, what I understand the apostle to be saying, Nympha says, is that the crucifixion of Jesus exposed the empire and all forms of unjust authority for what they are, cruel and empty, desperate and weak. 
Rome executed an innocent man for what? Healing the sick? Telling stories? Riding a donkey into Jerusalem? The Messiah's obedience and humbling himself, loving his enemies, caring for the poor and suffering, and turning away from violence made a mockery of this opulent and oppressive empire. It made a mockery of religious hypocrisy and exclusion. And his resurrection proves he is in fact Lord and master of all, for even Rome could not bury him. Even Caesar could not keep him dead for long. Maybe we are not called to overthrow the empire's social order, but to disarm it, to reveal its emptiness compared to gatherings like these where slave, master, husband, and wife are equals in service to Jesus. And if husbands and wives love each other, another pipes in, and slaves and masters respect one another, and if all submit to Jesus as the head of the Christian house, the chain of command begins to break down. Drusilla wonders aloud if there will come a day when the world doesn't need household codes, when Jesus really is Lord and master of every home. And that's when Aelia has a dangerous thought. They say Pax Romana begins in the home, she says. Maybe revolution does too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, that's from Rachel Held Evans' book, Inspired, Slaying Giants, Walking on Water, and Loving the Bible Again. Yeah. Um, And I, I think that is really key is like Jesus came to show us that this quest for power and the whole way that humans are doing life, we're putting people over others, vying for status, vying for, you know, more and more resources is not what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be loving one another in community. Yeah, exactly. And just made it it look really petty. Mm-hmm, exactly. And I, I love that thought. I love, I love that. So I encourage you to think, to, to, to look um, more at some of these things. And, and that's what we want to look at too, is what does it mean if we're going to live a Jesus way of doing marriage, where we're going to let Jesus upend this idea of power and authority and work on just serving one another. And, and as the, as the Lord's prayer says, bring God's will to earth as it is in heaven, that we want God's will done. And yet so often in church, we're still focused on a husband's will and we're getting uh-huh. stuff really messed, mixed up because we're not putting Jesus on the throne. Um, and I want to, I want to look at an example of that too. So I ha- I pulled an article that while I was on vacation, a bunch of people sent me. <laughs> um, yes. And um, I just thought it was such a good corrective of, of where we want to go. Because if we're going to put Jesus on the throne of our marriage, who is Jesus? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus shows us how we should walk. Jesus mm-hmm. says that the truth should be what guides us and we should not shy away from truth. Mm-hmm. And Jesus shows us that in him, we will have life and have it abundantly, right? So the way, the truth, the life. Now, let me ask you, as, I, as I'm going to read this, is any of this about the way, the truth, and the light. So this is an article from the Desiring God website. It came out hey. uh, earlier this month. I think it was even, it's only a few weeks old. Um, August 1st. Hey, you know, your husband. They're nothing if not consistent. We'll put it that yeah. way. Your husband will be perfect. How to love a flawed man. Um, and it's written by a guest contributor. I'm not going to name her. I don't think she has a huge platform and I'm not trying to shame her. Um, individually, I just want to show how this article yeah. is problematic. I will link to it, however, though, so you can go check it out for yourself. Okay, so her point is she she opens with with the point about how the gospel can can 
raise the dead. All right. And, and here's how she, um, how she talks about how to love a flawed man. If the gospel can accomplish these feats, it can surely transform ordinary men into husbands who love their wives as Christ loved the church. And it can surely transform ordinary women into wives who respect and submit to their husband's leadership. But that transformation is not automatic and it does not happen overnight. That's why Paul offers this apostolic marriage advice, stay in the light. While his advice applies to husbands and wives alike, this article addresses wives. Wives who want to see their marriages transformed must stay in the light where Christ himself shines on them, revealing truths and exposing lies that shape their expectations for marriage. In particular, light-seeking wives embrace two foundational truths and reject two persistent lies. Okay? Yeah, let's, let's go. Let's go. All right. So... Truth number one that you need to embrace if you're going to be a good wife married to a flawed man is that he is still a sinner. All right. Okay. Um, so you need to remember he is still a sinner. And here's how she how she um, encapsulates this. At times, your husband may be proud, harsh, or impatient. Ephesians 4.2. His unique cocktail of deceitful desires will afflict him. Ephesians 4.22. He will stumble by not actively guarding his mind. Ephesians 4.25-32.5.18. He may be tempted towards dishonesty, theft, laziness, destructive speech, resentment, selfishness, sexual immorality of various stripes, jealousies, greed, or substance abuse. In a word, he will falter in his charge to love you self-sacrificially. The light protects us from surprise over our husband's failures because because our expectations are built on this foundational truth. He is still a sinner. Holy cow. <laughs> Here's, can I just read you something really funny? Yeah. I want to actually mm-hmm. read you the verses that she quotes. Okay. Are you ready? Because they say something mm-hmm. very differently mm-hmm. than, uh, than what she does. And as you're doing that, I just want to point out that again, she is quoting from the epistles and not from the gospels which she does again and again, as we have already said. Yeah. <laughs> so she she's using Ephesians 4 quite a bit to make this point, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. This is a long section, but let me just, just, just read it. Okay. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility <laughs> of their thinking. <laughs> they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts, having lost all sensitivity. They have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, this is the verse she quotes right here. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. That's the verse she quotes to say that he currently has a deceitful desire as a Christian. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Next verse. To be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. And then it goes on like it, it, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen and do not grieve the 
Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Does that freaking sound like he's just going to want to do all the sexy things and all the idolatrous things and all the things? That's just how he is. He just has deceitful desires. What on the freaking earth? This is what bothers me with these guys. Okay, so like they write these articles. Like he may be tempted toward dishonesty, theft, laziness, destructive speech, resentment. She literally is quoting the same things that I just read where he's talking about how you were like this until you met Christ and now you should not do these things. Mm -hmm. Like, and so the idea that like we're going to screw up every now and then is one thing, but he says that his unique cocktail of deceitful desires is specifically what Paul says was supposed to die. Yeah. Like, what about if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has gone, the new has come. Yep. Like, Paul said what? that too. <laughs> Paul said that too. Like, I'm only using Paul, buddy. I was raised Baptist, okay? I am, <laughs> I am only using Paul here. The same Paul who says, and such were some of you about thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, uh, idolaters, adulterers, all those things. So were some of you, <laughs> but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. That's what the Paul, who this lady is quoting, says the Christian life is about. Yeah. You are no longer and so, dominated. And, and no, let's, no, let's I do, I do want to say, can I say yeah, one yeah. more thing? Paul mm -hmm. also is the one who says, you know, why is it that the things I want to do, I do not do, but the things that I hate, I do. Totally. We all are going to sin and screw up. But this idea that you are still by foundation identity, you are still a sinner is profoundly anti-gospel. The whole mm -hmm. point of Jesus is that it's a rebirth. The His death on the cross was to liberate us from sin. And so if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's a gospel quote. You know, I, these, <laughs> these are things where the whole point of being Christians that our identity changes from sinner into, you know, like reborn, saved, whatever you want to call it. But our identity is different. We're human, yes. But we shouldn't be living as sinners in the same way. Right. So, and, anyway. and the point and the point of this part of this part of her article is to tell people that you should not expect your husband to not be a sinner. And listen to some of the things that she mentions. Laziness. So not helping around the house, not doing anything with kids, not being an engaged partner. You're not allowed to expect him to be an engaged partner. Um, sexual immorality of various types. You're not allowed to expect him not to watch porn. You're not allowed to expect him not to have an affair. Think, yeah, You're not sexual, allowed. Uh, sexual immorality of various stripes too. Like mm -hmm. it's... That's that means that there's a lot of different things. Yeah, that you're not allowed to expect him not. In fact, you, you're supposed to expect that he will, because she actually says this. Our expectations are should not be that he won't do these th these things. Our expectations should be that he will. And that so is the is... point of her article, and 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 substance abuse. So our expectations are that substance abuse is probably something or could be something that our husbands will be involved in. And that should not be something that bothers us. And I think that there's a level where, yes, we have to understand that we are married to human beings. 
Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I can be really lazy because I'm just exhausted and burnt Mm -hmm. out. And even when I wasn't exhausted and burnt out, I live, I was, you know, we're millennials. We -hmm. have so much technology and entertainment, right? Of course we can all do that. Of course we can all be selfish sometimes. The difference is I hate this mentality that is like, well, I'm just a sinner. So I guess I'm selfish sometimes. Absolutely not. We are constantly working at sanctification. We are constantly trying to allow the Holy Spirit to continue to morph us more and more into the image of Christ. This Mm -hmm. idea that like, well, I'm a sinner. That's why I hate it so much because Christ says, be holy as I am holy. Mm -hmm. Christ doesn't say, try to be holy, but you're still wretched. That's not what Christ (laughs) says. Right? That's not what Paul says. Paul says, that was your past. Stop acting like your past. Act like your future. But but the reason, but think about how much marriage advice is aimed at women, telling women the whole problem with your marriage is that you expect him to be good. Yeah. And so this, and you know, uh, when we used to speak at marriage conferences, um, when we started with the oldest curriculum uh, at Family Life, uh, back in like 2005, 2006, there was a whole bunch, a whole emphasis on how expectations are bad, how we shouldn't have expectations, how the reason we're disappointed in marriage is because we have these expectations. Yeah. It's not wrong to have some expectations. It's totally yeah. good to expect that your spouse will not engage in sexual immorality, will not have substance abuse, that they will be an engaged partner. And if they're not, it's okay to make an issue out of these things. Yeah, it is totally okay to make an issue out of these things. Okay, but not only that, we're supposed to as Christians. Like, if there's someone in your church who's like out getting lap dances every Thursday night, Mm -hmm. like we're not like, well, Brad's a sinner. Like, no one says that. Like, they're like, Brad, stop freaking. But in your marriage. Yeah, but in your marriage, you're like, yeah, we, we keep telling women to forgive and forgive and forgive. Okay, point number two that she has point. This is the other truth that we're supposed to believe is that he is growing. Okay. He's growing. So if your husband is awake and alive, then Christ shines on him. He will increasingly see his sin and he will know what to do about it. Will he? Equipped. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. These two foundational truths that your husband is a sinner, but he is growing should shape your expectations about marriage, tempering your idealism with reality and your pessimism with hope. Tempering your idealism with reality. What's the idealism here? That like this is idealism. This isn't reality. What's the she's saying? You're just being idealistic that your husband isn't growing and that your husband isn't improving. That's idealism. That's what like you know ideal like no no yeah like this is ideal the ideal you know Trevor might spend all of his time drinking beer until he gets drunk just burping and playing video games and he may have lost four jobs because of his inability to not watch porn at work and he might not be an engaged father and also you might have to do all of his laundry and constantly find that there are skid marks on his underwear because he can't be bothered to pipe his own butt after he poops but he's growing (laughs) who's the freaking who's being idealistic here yeah like where are we allowed to just say or we just say trevor get your stuff together because you're better yeah. than this. But the, but to say this as a fact, that your husband is growing. No, okay? some people aren't. <laughs> no, no. Some people are not growing in Christ. Some people are actively moving away from Christ. Yeah, that's called regression. And yeah, yeah. And, you know, some people are constantly hardening their hearts towards God. So no, he is not necessarily growing and we should not be be just believing that. Okay, let's turn to the lies. That you, Wait, can okay, I just say something first? Can I just say something first? Yeah. 
mm-hmm. this I, I'm reading this quote that we pulled. These two foundational truths, which mm, questionable. Your husband is a sinner, <laughs> but he is growing. Should shape your expectations about marriage, tempering your idealism with reality and your pessimism with hope. That quote there. I will say, I was someone who was married to a baby Christian. So I can, I'm just going to say, because we always want to give the most benefit whenever we can, right? For mm-hmm. me, when Con and I were dating and marriage, it was so incredibly clear what trajectory he was on. Mm-hmm. You know, he was someone who came from very much not being a Christian to very much being Christian very quickly. And we were married. And so this idea that, yeah, Connor's still sorting it out, but he was growing. That was something that I didn't really have to think too much about because I had so much faith that he was growing. My question mm-hmm. is, like, if you're someone who has to be reminded that they're growing, are they growing? Because yeah. I had the... I had that right in front of me. I was like, but look at who you were four months ago. Look at who you were a year ago. Look at who you were three years ago. Like it was no question what trajectory he was on. My question is, if your husband's actually growing, do you need this reminder as strongly as she's giving it? Mm -hmm. Like, because I maybe every now and then need to be like, okay, calm down. Like, just, just let's, let's just take a second here. Miss perfectionist. Like, cause I am Mm -hmm. and be like, okay, so the man has a couple small things we're dealing with but we're currently dealing with them Mm -hmm. like any time that i have had to have a a reality check in my marriage is to remind myself that oh but we are dealing with it it's just that these things don't happen overnight right like we've been really open with mental load stuff right like okay Mm -hmm. i just know how to make a white sauce and i just know how to roast a chicken and i just know how to do all these things when he was learning how to do it yeah dinner took longer or sometimes it wasn't done right those are the kinds of things just like yeah but he's learning how to do it mm-hmm. give him time not but he spent 80 hours playing league of legends instead of doing it right like th- right. see what i mean it's like so I- i'm saying mm-hmm. like i understand that this stuff can be true because i've lived that but it was never stressful because it was so clear what trajectory he was on. And he was already pretty good. Yeah. And if you have to tell women that your husband is growing, he likely isn't. Yeah. And also, again, the idea that this is a universal truth, that your husband is growing, is simply untrue. It's Because so we, can, we can totally be walking away from Christ. Okay. here Here's the first lie that we might believe. And it's, I am more righteous than he is. Besides revealing two foundational truths for marriage, the light of Christ exposes two persistent lies in marriage. The first is the lie of superior righteousness. All of us indulge in pride from time to time, supposing ourselves better than our husbands. But if we stay in the light, we cannot escape the equalizing effect of the cross. Oh, dear Lord, save me. Okay. This is so common. And it's so The equalizing effect of the cross. Yes, we are all sinners. And yes, our sin has separated us from God. No, our sin is not equal. No. And also this idea that some people are not more righteous than others is just, just, that's a stupid idea. Like if you're thinking about who you want your kids to look up to, you have people. Okay. Well, even Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses those, like think of how uh, those are the Pharisees, Like, like unless your righteousness surpasses those, like he over and over again in the gospels. Like over and over again in the gospels, Jesus talks about how some people are more righteous than others. But I think, and also I think the issues come with this. First of all, we misunderstand what righteousness is a lot of the time. And um, I think this author misunderstands what righteousness is a lot of the time. Cause mm-hmm. I think righteousness is just acknowledging that you're a sinner in the eyes of desiring God. And it's like, that's not righteousness. That's just mm-hmm. even the demons know and shake. Um, but I think that this is, this is a situation where 
we have to I said that I believe I don't remember if this is a Patreon podcast or a live one, but the idea of common sense faith where you're allowed to just use your brain. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what? If you're someone who struggles with uh comparison and pride, and there's someone who struggles with pedophilia mm-hmm. and like, you know, related things, mm-hmm. it's not about how you don't need Jesus. But there is a level where it's like, okay, maybe we don't let our kids uh, try to be like that person. Maybe I'm like, mm-hmm. hey, this person struggles with like comparison and pride, but they're doing a really great job with generosity and you can follow them because, yeah, they're working on it. They're a good person. Like, do you, do you see what I mean? Like the idea mm-hmm. that we can't use common sense is something that is so commonly used to specifically make women doubt their experience of reality. Mm-hmm. That it's a problem because here's here I have not actually really met people who are saying things like, hey, my husband is like destroying my life, but I'm perfect and I don't need Jesus. What they often they often know they need Jesus. And what I what we've had to deal with more often is teaching these women to have even a semblance of a Mm self-esteem. Um, (laughs) Like they actually often think they are just as bad as their husbands who are like physically and emotionally abusing them and actively engaging in substance abuse um that's harming their children and like like a lot of the stuff and it's like no you're allowed to you're allowed to speak plainly you're allowed to speak plainly what's happening and he's he's choosing to be a bad person and you might have flaws and faults but you're not choosing to be a bad person and that matters and that counts yeah because again there's a huge difference between like, yes, our sin has separated us from God. All of us, even the smallest yeah. sin has separated us from God. Yes, that does not mean that all sins are equal. And the Bible is so clear that sins are judged <laughs> like over and over again. It, it gives yeah. examples of people who are judged more harshly. So yes, there is superior righteousness. There is. Yeah. There's not a myth of superior righteousness. There yeah, are some All people- righteousness cannot happen separate from Christ. Yes. Like that's the thing. All righteousness is through Jesus and God. Mm-hmm. And all sin separates us from Jesus and God. Mm-hmm. But there's clearly differences. And again, God gave you a brain. You are allowed yeah. to use it. God yeah. gave you a brain. Do not bury the brain. Use the brain. The brain is a talent, okay? Don't <laughs> bury the brain. Don't bury the talent. Use the brain. God gives you things mm-hmm. so that you can use them. Please use them. Don't let someone convince you that like stuff in front of your face isn't true. Yeah, exactly. Okay, lie number two. I know what's best for him. Be wary also of a second persistent lie lurking in the shadows, the lie of superior wisdom. Doubtless, if you were God, you would choose a different path for your husband's transformation than the one he is currently on. But the light of Christ breaks into our blind spots, challenging even our expectations about how our husbands should grow. This is, again, so assuming a- the man is on a growth trajectory, which, again, yes. like, and I'm, I'm not saying here's, you know, I should actually say a really big caveat. For why I'm reacting so strongly. Women in marriages with good men, where they're having a small little bump in the road or things aren't great, I just haven't personally experienced through our hundreds of thousands of readers at this point and like the thousands and thousands of stories that we've read that marriages that are like 87% or like even 75%. Mm-hmm. are having to be convinced not to get divorced mm-hmm. and are having to be convinced that like he's still an okay human being 
Mm-hmm. It's the women who are at like 40%. <laughs> and you have to ask who's reading these websites, right? Who's reading the idea that your husband isn't perfect, but it'll be okay. Are they the people like, first of all, if it is someone where it's like, you're fundamentally good people, you've got a problem. Like let's take mental oaks, which is a super easy one. Okay. And it's so freaking common. If you're someone where your marriage is pretty good, but you're carrying all the mental load and you're getting burnt out and exhausted, that can destroy a marriage. Then is the answer to tell him he's a sinner, but you're a sinner and he's growing and you're no better than him and you don't know what's best either. You don't. Mm-hmm. Or is the answer to be like, oh, have you guys heard of the fair play work? Like, have you heard of <laughs> mental load? Have you figured this out? Like, what purpose does an article like this have other than to tell women, sweetie, Oh, sweetie, you're making so many problems for everyone else. Because remember, you don't matter. You don't <laughs> matter. Yeah. Just keep married because you don't matter. And they're not giving her any practical tools to change anything. Mm-hmm. They're not saying, Except- he's, a, he's a Christian. He should want to be better. You know, have you thought of an accountability group for this? Have there other, think about the problem that you have. Can you identify four or five other couples who may have gone through this and who have gotten through the other side? Can you talk to them? Can you make a support group? Nothing like that. Do you know that. what boundaries are? Can you, can yeah. you set boundaries? Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. like, you know, have you, have you, con- is it something that has research based on it? Have you considered looking at the research? Like nothing like that. It's just, he's growing sweet pumpkin. He's growing. Just yeah. keep praying and this, my sweet and pumpkin. This- and this is where the Jesus way comes in. And this is the big takeaway that I want. I know that we've analyzed this article a lot and we've spent a lot of time. On it, but this is the big takeaway that I want us all to take is this. Jesus is the truth. Yeah. Which means we're allowed to tell the truth about our marriage and any advice that tells you to ignore the truth, mm-hmm. to ignore your common sense, to ignore what is in front of your eyes is not of Jesus. What this advice is doing is it's gaslighting women. Mm-hmm. It's it's telling you what you're seeing isn't actually happening yeah. and you're misunderstanding everything. And that's not the way it actually is. Yeah. Jesus doesn't gaslight us. Jesus says it's okay to tell the truth because we can't solve anything until we can name it. Yeah. And again, if this article was talking about how to figure out if what you're looking at is a good thing to be stressed about or an overreaction. And it were mm-hmm. actual steps. Like, let's talk about it. Let's figure this out. That would be something different too. Because sometimes we are perfectionists uh, for ourselves and others. Sometimes we're burnt out. And so we have unrealistic mm-hmm. expectations, right? Like sometimes you're in a couple where both of you are giving 100%, but life is just asking for 130 from each of you. And so you're going to let 60% drop. And yeah. that's not fair, you know? And sometimes that happens. But this isn't addressing that. This could easily, like, this is just, it's not offering any hope. It's not offering any help. And it's not teaching you how to acknowledge truth. It's saying, just shut down that still quiet voice, bury your talents because God is a harsh God. That's what it says. And remember in the parable of the talents, the servant who buried his talent comes humbly towards God, head down saying, I know that you are a harsh master. And so I buried the talent to make sure it was not stolen and here. And God is like, you, you know, I'm so harsh. Like, how is this not teaching women? Like, you're not more righteous than him. You're still a despicable, horrible worm. He's growing. Mm-hmm. You don't know anything. How's not saying God is a harsh master, bury that talent, or he's going to burn you? How is mm-hmm. this not giving that impression to women? How is this not encouraging them to live a life of fear of God? If you're a woman who is going to desiring God because you 
are married to a man who is sucking the life out of you, who is just absolutely like, again, we know that women in bad marriages, they, they have worse health outcomes. Like they, they die earlier. We saw a study about that Mm -hmm. come out in the last two years, their mental health like rates are through the roof. Like it's not good for women to be in bad marriages. So you have one of these women coming here and what are they told about God? They're told God is looking at her. Who's being just, again used and no and let, let's let's god is looking at this woman whose husband is uh yeah an alcoholic the example she gives or a drug abuser or is a chronic porn user or is having one night stands and affairs um or uh is proud yeah, harsh impatient is not yeah is not doing any work around the house and saying you are not more righteous than he is you're no better than him you're no better than him, even though he's cheating on you, even though he's an alcoholic or a drug addict, you're no better than him and you don't know what's best for him. Yeah. You don't have a right to have a voice here. You don't have a right to have yeah. a thought. And That's like that just Jesus. to me, that is the master that, that is the God that the servant with one talent believed he was serving, but he wasn't. And yeah. women, you are not serving a harsh and cruel God. You are serving a God who wants you to have the freedom to go forth and use what he has given you to make more, to experience life and life abundant. And this, this is utter crap. Yeah, it is. And so what would it look like going forward if instead of focusing on chain of command marriage and maintaining the right power, Mm -hmm. we focused on a revolutionary idea from Jesus, which is what does it look like to live sacrificially in community? Uh-huh. And what does it look like to turn the world on its head and knock down the walls that are dividing us and say, hey, I want to live with humility and service. But at the same time, I'm not going to shy away from truth. Yeah. Humility, not false humility. Right. No service, not because we like, don't fix anything. Whatever this is like Jesus wants wholeness and health. And we do not achieve wholeness and health by telling lies. We achieve wholeness and health by living in Christ, who is the truth. And it is okay to tell the truth to yourself, to others about your marriage. It is okay to admit to yourself where things are going right and where things are going wrong. Because when we do tell the truth, we open up the door for Jesus to do his work. When we tell the truth and at the same time, you know, we are submitting to Jesus. We are, oh, we are being, walking in humility. Um, We are walking in love with truth. We open the door to healing. And so we need both of those pieces. And that's what we're going to be looking at next week. We're going to be looking at um, telling the truth and what we talk, how we talk about marriage. And we're going to be answering the question, do complementarians really have better marriages? There's been a lot of stuff on this while we've been on vacation because of a new book um, that's out and we're going to get super data driven. (laughs) We're going to have some fun with that one. Um, We're going to be telling the truth about the Barbie movie. Um, I I haven't seen it yet because we were on vacation and now we have COVID, but I really want to go so that we can talk about the Barbie movie. Um, and so many other fun things coming up. But we're so we're so glad that you have joined us for this new season of the Bear Marriage Podcast. Um, I I invite you to go on to bearmarriage.com where the two things that we talked about today um, are actually up in posts that were that uh, went up this week. So I'll put um, links to those in the podcast notes. And again, uh, we just would love you to join our more exclusive community, our patron group, uh, where you can support our research and support what we do for as little as five dollars a month and get access to our exclusive Facebook group 
and some amazing unfiltered podcasts. And that's often where I just um, vent. And I also share my thinking bef- often before I write posts to see what other people say. And we just have a great time there. So um, you can check us out at patreon.com slash bare marriage. And thanks so much. And we will see you again next week. <laughs> Bye-bye. See ya.